You're listening to the Virtual World Society podcast. For this episode, we invited Avi Bar Zaev, president of the XR Guild and Reality Prime, pioneer with companies like Second Life and Apple. To get involved with our organization, head over to virtualworldsociety.org. What is going on, everybody? It is Maxwell with the Virtual World Society podcast. Very honored to be here today with Avi Bar-Zaev, who is the president of XR Guild and Reality Prime, pioneer with companies like Second Life and Apple and so many more. Avi, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. As far as this technology goes and as history has shown us it's changed the world and continues to change the world and you've had such a big part in this technology how did this all begin for you as far as getting involved with this tech involved with virtual reality augmented reality mixed reality all of this you know a lot of it is being in the right place at the right time and and uh taking risks so the very first thing I did out of college, I uh, did an internship, but I said, I don't want to just get a normal, boring job. Um, I was on this Usenet group called Cy Virtual Worlds that was run by uh, Bob Jacobson. And he said, oh, you know, I'm starting up a company. So come out to Seattle and come join us and we're going to do VR. And this was 1992. Um, and only academic labs in the military could really afford to do anything before then. So I drove across the country and joined the startup. Um, and not surprisingly, it ran out of money. But in the process, we were able to do some really cool demos that got me some attention. And we had borrowed some really expensive equipment, like big computers. And so the people who we borrowed them from wanted to see what we did. And they came and looked. They're like, okay, you you should get a job with these other people. So I didn't even know, for example, that, App, that um, Disney was working on VR in the 90s. Like, who would have thought? Uh, that they're working on rides for the theme parks. And so this connection from doing a demo for the startup that ran out of money got me the job at Disney, effectively, that I never would have known about. Um, and then in meeting the people that I work with at Disney, I got to meet lots more people. And that opened up the world for uh, later on when I met uh, I met up with them again to do a startup that was called Intrinsic Graphics. And then we spun off something called Keyhole and that turned into Google Earth. So knowing the same people from that time led me to this whole other thing later. And, and you know, I, I can't stress enough how important networking really is and how, how much of a detriment people are. If they, if they feel that they're locked out of that network for, for whatever reason, it, it really is hard because the best jobs are the ones that aren't advertised that you don't know about, but you got to know the right people to, to hear about them. So I mean, eventually I got a reputation as somebody who could join projects early and help figure them out from early days. And I got to be pretty, pretty good at that and prototyping. And so the later jobs like Microsoft, Amazon, and Apple were all around using that skill I learned, which is which is you got to be really fearless and jump in to try things that have never been tried before or are brand new, and you may fail. You will fail a lot. But uh, the outcome of doing these things is you get to convince companies to spend billions of dollars on things that they might not otherwise do. And that, that means I don't have to have a billion dollars in order to do something. I can go, I can go get Microsoft to spend a billion dollars and do something that is collaborative instead of just what I could do by myself, but has lots and lots of people working on it that are all really smart. 
So that's that's a pretty good way to go with some downsides, of course, big companies, but but it, it allows you to unlock some really big potential more quickly than if you were to try to do everything by yourself. So I've been really lucky to be able to, to hop from, from job to job like that. Um, and I normally spend enough time there to do as much good as I can do. And when I feel like I've kind of hit the diminishing returns on the amount of good, then I probably move on to the next thing. It's incredible your journey in this industry and everything that you've done and all the different companies that you work for and all the projects that you've worked worked on. I can imagine it must have been very difficult to convince, especially executives that want to crunch numbers and are thinking about the financial side of things and try and convince them to invest billions of dollars in these very new projects because it must have been very early on in the technology where these executives didn't really understand it. How how did you how did you pitch that? How did you pitch those ideas to them so that they would understand it enough to want to invest all that money? Um, yeah. So you need you need to build it. Like that's the thing is, in order for them to get it, you got to build it. You don't get a billion dollars to go try and build something randomly. You might get a million dollars to try to go build something that is new. Uh, and that's enough to, to you know, support a small team for a year, let's say. So you'll get just enough rope to go hang yourself and to try try these things out. But at the end of the day, the thing that you build with that prototype money has got to be magical. And people have to be able to experience it and see, yes, everybody needs to have this. It's got to be so overwhelming. Not just, you know, we could see how this might be better than a smartphone, but I'm really not sure. My smartphone does a whole bunch of cool stuff. Uh, you got to be able to go, okay, yeah, this, this is going to happen one way or another. We better be the ones to do it. Um, and that's not to say that I'm the only one that, that convinced them. The way, that, the way this is structured often is that I'm in, I'm in a group that knows its early days, that, know, that understands the value of prototyping. It's not just me you know, being Sisyphus pushing the rock uphill by myself. My, my job in those roles is to, to get a team together that can do a really good set of prototypes because I can't do it all by myself. And to have just enough budget to do these things and just enough equipment to be able to, to, to make it look amazing and just enough art support. Um, and then my job has been to both have the intuition of what might make be a magical demo. Like, if you think about it, like, what's the most important thing to demo? Well, if the decision makers are telling you on day one that they don't ever think that AR, VR can be social because it's socially isolating, then your clue is you better do a demo that is going to show them that it doesn't have to be socially isolating. So you want to focus on that issue because that's their blocker. And if it, so my skill has been in translating from what I hear from designers, executives, engineers, in terms of the blockers and their concerns into demos that can answer their questions and make them feel comfortable. Because at the end of the day, what we're selling is not certainty. We're selling comfort. We're selling, uh, but I mean that not as that not like cushy comfort. We're selling, we're selling a sense of emotional and financial comfort to say, if you take this risk, it may pay off. They probably will pay off, but it's not going to be easy or cheap. Here's what you need to know. And here are the hard problems that need to get solved. And then the other thing I provided was connecting up the researchers and, and, and the work that, that needed to get done in a, in, a, in an early enough time frame. So, you know, if, if you know you need to get world-class tracking and you know it's going to take four or five years, you better start that early. You better get the people who could do that and solve that working on it before you need it or else you're going to wind up trying to ship and you're going to have some pretty crappy pieces of the puzzle. So so I was generally good at thinking far enough ahead that we could go back in time, start the thing at the time it was needed and in order to be ready for the time where we're going to ship something and launch it. Um, that that takes a lot of sort of intuition and experience to get a sense of how hard these problems are and, and, and what they need to get solved. And 
Sometimes those things just result in early patents and they never get built. And the company gets a patent for something that was just a good idea. And at other times, it takes a couple of iterations to get it right. And maybe it's not even the same company that gets it right. It might have started in one company, their solution sucked, the new, next company has a better way to solve it. Uh, and then they can all fight it out uh, over who owns that at the end of the day. Yeah. I've noticed, especially with um, with VR, it's all about problem solving. It's like it's got to solve some sort of problem to be to be fluid and to be productive. Um, Leslie Shannon, who was at the uh, Virtual World Society breakfast with you, um, re said in her in her book, she had mentioned that um, you know, virtual reality, new technologies have to solve these problems. That's why 3D TVs didn't really catch on is because they're not really solving a problem. It's just a cool, it's just a cool idea that's very temporary. And problems that these, like especially extended reality technology solve, what are some of these problems? Because I know that it can be very social, even though you are alone in a headset, but are there specific things about the social aspect of XR technology that it solves in our everyday lives? I mean, for, for the people who like Second Life the most, I think, were the people who didn't like their first life as much. I think that they, they valued having a second life. And that's that, and it's not that everybody is all happy out there. It's just that most people that I know are heavily invested in their first life, whether whether it's hard or not, they're obsessed with it. And, and, and that's what they want to talk about. That's what they want to think about. And they don't really want to have a whole new set of problems in another world. And I think that's what that's what topped off the the the, the size of Second Life at you know eight million I think max uh, maybe it's about a million today and people still love it people still it still makes money but there were a lot of people who didn't like it and for me actually that was it was even more than that it wasn't that I loved my first life so much but that I hate griefers I really hated people who were in there being abusive and there were no controls on that whatsoever so that was a huge turnoff for me safety is really important so. Uh, for a lot of people, and and so those two things I think held it back. In fact, you could you could tout all the positive features in the world you want, but if the device or the experience is not safe, forget it. You're not going anywhere, except for a very small number of people who are who don't care about that, or were willing to put it aside. So so um, th those are those are those are kind of key issues. I think though that what you said about utility matters. The hurdle is it's got to be more useful than the thing you're doing already. So you've already tried to solve your problems with available tools and technology. So, you know, you already have a smartphone, which has lots of apps and does cool things on it. Even, even when this stuff started, even in 1992, we already had ways of solving these problems. We might build a 3D model, or we might pay an interior designer to go do their own designs and not visualize the whole thing in a 3D walkthrough. So there were ways to solve it that were good enough for the time. And so what you have to show is, is significantly more value in the new thing because there's a switching cost. It's got, I've got to have confidence. I've got to be sure it's going to work, but it also costs me to switch from the way I'm doing it now to the new way of doing it. So that the, the benefit has to be so obvious to me. And then the confidence level among consumers needs to be so high that they're willing to take that risk. Um, those are, those are hard things to address. So all the demos that you build up front need to be so good and so overwhelming that somebody could look at it and go, yeah, people will give up the way they're doing it for this, that, that they, they, this is clearly better. And with a lot of AR, that's really hard. It's hard to say why would it be better to do in life-size 3D graphics versus smaller scale graphics on the screen when it's so much more convenient in many ways to do on the screen. Um, and and for VR, you have to say, look, it has to beat the it has to be role playing. It has to be the travel. You know, it has to be all sorts of things that we were doing before VR 
that were still fun and still interested, including movies and other and other kinds of games. Those things were those things are good. <laughs> like they're not they're not horrible. And so VR has to be that much better um, at doing it. And, and when I say socially isolating, you can see the positive of bringing people together from different places that they, where they couldn't be. But there's the negative of your kids, your family. You're in the same room and you're isolating yourself from them. And I think that's what people were most concerned with: is that we don't want to. We don't want to put people in their own isolated bubbles when they can be together and, and enjoy their time together. Do you think that people's perspective has changed over time on on virtual reality? So you talk about how we're kind of a, we were originally afraid that it was going to isolate us from family and friends, people who are in our in our homes together. Do you think people have a better understanding of, of virtual reality now? Because it, it seems like there's a lot more commercials over it, you know, focused on gaming a lot of the time. But it seems like more people understand mixed reality and, and extended reality a little bit more. I think I think that with the Apple Vision Pro, yes. I think before that, I would say no, because even even respected journalists, journalists I like what they write, still had trouble understanding the spectrum from AR to VR and how one device could do it. Now they're going to get a chance to try it, right? Some of them did already get to go to the big reveal and try it and turn the little knob on the head and go, oh, wow, AR and VR are just two ends of a spectrum. It's like, yes, that's what we've been saying all along. So like like that they, i think you have to experience it to get it to understand why these aren't different things anymore and and a lot of people were arguing vr is this and ar is that really honestly it's just different sets of experiences some some experiences are better at the vr end of the spectrum some a lot of experiences i think are better at the ar end of the spectrum where you're immersed in your real world as much as possible people so the people didn't really see that until they saw it was possible to be on a device that has both um but i do also think that a lot of the answer would be, no, it hasn't changed that much because the same people that were going to use VR two years ago are going to use VR today at that end of the spectrum for playing games, for you know, for all the stuff you might do without pass-through, without seeing the real world. That hasn't really changed that much. Training, education, game playing, um, that's mostly it. I don't think I'm going to even argue VR that much for telepresence anymore because, again, you're giving up your current surroundings in order to go somewhere else. And if there's other real people in your current surroundings, that makes it very difficult. So I think telepresence is really going to be much more at the AR end of the spectrum. And I think that the better experience is not what, what Meta showed with their workrooms, where we all go to some boring 3D room to meet, which is no better than the real room we would have commuted into to see. That's no improvement. That's just giving us the same thing in another form. The improvement is when I can sit at home and be comfortable in my sweatpants and then turn to my left and talk to a coworker who just happens to be free between their work and we can, we can asynchronously chat to each other. That's stuff that all belongs at the AR end of the spectrum. And, it, and it's stuff that people haven't fully embraced yet because they still haven't seen it. That we need to figure out not how to spend our days in endless Zoom meetings. That's not the answer to remote work. That's, that's wrong. And it's, it's not practical because people have way more time now when they work at home, we were way less time now, spend way more time in meetings than they did before. And most of those meetings aren't necessary. So we need to figure out how to have the benefits of the office without having to get in a car or a plane to get to work. I think we're almost there, but people haven't quite seen that final transformation of let's all work at home, but have our coworkers come to us when we need them. That's that's actually going to be much better. Yeah. And I completely agree. I, I think that that situation is uh, is better. And of course, the first thing I think of 
always, even before I was in uh, it, it involved in extended reality, is is the Star Wars uh, setup. You know, where all yeah. of the characters are are different holograms of each other. And um, I always saw that, and I I said, wouldn't it be cool if meanings actually happened like that? You know, or in in Kingsman. And I see yeah. those references, and I think to myself, you know, that that is so cool. And it seems practical, though. Like, there's a lot of stuff that's in fantasy and science fiction that does totally. feel practical like that. And uh, Not only that, let me, let me jump for, just, just to tell you, that they, people have already built this, and it, and it works. People have built these rooms. They call them life-size or uh, halo rooms where there's video walls all around you, and you're sitting in a desk, and they're sitting in a desk, and it all looks like you're in one big room but it's just video. It's not as immersive as it would be in VR. And those rooms cost, you know, quarter of a million dollars, but they build them for executives to have meetings in so that they could do exactly the star Wars thing. Yeah. And it, it feels really cool. I wish uh, that I could experience one of those rooms, but at the same time, I'm like, you know, with all the different headsets and everything that is coming out, a, a lot of these things we get to experience over time, just as regular average everyday consumers, you know, and it becomes a lot easier over time to explain these different concepts. An example is the metaverse. We keep hearing about the metaverse. We keep hearing about how it is the future or maybe it's overused a little bit. And what are your perspectives on on the word metaverse and, and how do you define it as somebody who is a pioneer really in spatial computing? Yeah, I have, a, I have an interesting relationship to that word. So in that first startup I was in where I took that big risk, uh, Neil Stevenson came and hung out, I think because because my CEO, Bob Jacobson, knew him and had had dinner with him and invited him to come do research by watching us in the office and what we were working on in VR. Um, now, that didn't influence Snow Crash. So it didn't have anything to do with the word, the metaverse. Neil was already thinking about those things. But uh, maybe later, maybe, maybe it showed up in, in some of his later books. Who knows? Um, but I, I think that when the word came out, I already had other words for it. I didn't even like cyberspace that much. That, that word got abused a lot too. Um, so there wasn't a great word for it. It actually is a, just a point of fact that the name of my consulting company, Reality Prime, was that was the word I used for the metaverse in 1992 because I didn't like the other words. And then I eventually turned it into the name, the name of my consulting company. Not, not that I'm going to get other people to use it, but that's what I like it for. Um, the things that I like about the metaverse are that it, is, it can be social and it can be interesting and new. The things that I think I have problems with is that we haven't even solved how to have small group interactions well. What we need to start with is put two people in virtual space and have them have the best experience. Then put four and then put eight and then put 16. Before you try 10,000 or even 1,000, you know, if they're strangers, if those thousand people aren't your friends and don't owe you anything, and there's no repercussions to them acting like jerks, at least one or two of them will act like jerks, and you're going to have a pretty crappy experience as a result. And we haven't solved that yet. And I don't trust AI moderators to solve that. I don't even trust human moderators. So they're they're sort of glorified hall pass monitors from school. And and what we really need is people to behave better, which happens when people are, are acting in social groups, people, they're acting in communities of people they know with social accountability. So what I'm arguing for is let's first get co-presence right with what, what you might call consensual reality. Like I like this term because everybody's there consensually and we only add things into the space that are consensual. So right now, just as an example, I have, I have a, a mug in my hand. It's not part of the conversation, but if I bring it in, and bring it up to, if we were on video, you'd all see my mug, that 
you know, now I brought it and made it part of the conversation and you've accepted it. You could have said no video, no mugs, no mugs. Um, and, and then we have this debate about whether content should or shouldn't be here. And, and that's what I mean by consensual is that the people are more or less agreed on the rules amongst themselves. The big problem you have in massive multiplayer is you have some people who think the rules is kill everybody or harass everybody. And other people don't like that. And they have not agreed on a common rule set. So people are going to be unhappy as a result. Until we can solve this, let's not build the metaverse. Let's actually not try to build, build the global space that we are all in uh, because it, it's going to be a shit show. Let's, let's focus on the small group interactions, get that right, and then scale that out, which is frankly the way the web was built. The web wasn't built by starting with a map of the internet. It was built with one web page that got connected to the second web page through links, got connected to the third web page, and it slowly built a web, not even that slowly, but but it was built gradually a, a page at a time and a link at a time. So let's think about that the same way as opposed to this top-down map of galaxies and planets and all this other stuff. We just, we're not ready for that yet. That might be the ultimate way to see it, but that's not what you want to start with. Cause you got to have, you know, there, again, first and foremost, safety, people have to feel safe and, and, and a bit able to spend as much time as they want there without being threatened in any way. And some people don't even, don't even feel safe just to wear a headset because they feel like if I'm in a, a group of strangers physically, I don't know what they're going to do. Are they going to look at me? Are they going to grope me? I don't know what's going to happen. That's a legitimate concern for some people. And then other people are concerned about what happens in the headset. So I think if we err on the side of safety, there is a path. There is a path forward, but it's a cautious path. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that safety and people feeling secure in these spaces and comfortable in these spaces is really what's going to convince so many individuals that are not part of the extended reality technology universe and, and this industry, regular people who aren't really as involved with this technology to join it. And feeling safe is going to be so important, feeling like you're not going to be harassed in these spaces. And I noticed that there was a lot of deep, obviously, conversation happening at the Virtual World Society breakfast at AWE, which was a wonderful, incredible event. And based on those conversations, your perspectives and, and what you had shared during that breakfast, what do you think is going to move the technology for uh, even further, even further than, than what it is right now as far as adaption, uh, uh, sorry, adoption by so many different companies, organizations, individuals? What's going to help move the technology forward, especially based off of the conversations that you all had at the Virtual World Society breakfast? Um, yeah, I think we're not supposed to repeat what other people said, but but I think I think that I think the adoption that we're going to see, and by the way, that was right before the Apple Vision reveal, so I couldn't say anything about that either. Um, but my my sense is that Apple is doing this the right way, and that you're going to see uh, high end consumer and business adoption come first, um, which was frankly the same for the smartphones, right? When when not that's not smartphones, even regular cell phones, when they were still just this giant brick and cost a couple thousand dollars. I mean, first they were so big, they only fit in your car. So only people with high-end cars had cell phones, right? Then it was a brick, and only you still had to be fairly rich uh, and not care too much about the radiation uh, back then, which was pretty bad. Uh, and then eventually you get you get cheaper phones and smartphones and flip phones. Uh, we're not at the flip phone stage yet, where we have something that's cheap enough and, and okay. And, and and those bricks that you'd carry around only lasted a little while. The power was so ridiculous that they didn't last. So we're still at that phase. So I think business adoption, high-end uses, specialized uses are still going to absorb all the need in the beginning. Um, and 
you know, I would buy one of those. I would not buy one for every member of my family yet. I don't want to spend $10,000 yet on an upgrade for our entertainment system. But as soon as I can get a family of four set up with those for the price of a new TV set, we're golden, right? Because I've already, I've already spent, you know, $3,000 on a TV set. I've already spent, you know, $1,000 on a stereo system. Uh, I bought, I spent $4,000 on my laptop, right? That, those, those, that scale of prices are things I'm willing to do for high-end entertainment or business use. Uh, but not quite, you know, the playroom, right? It's not, it's not the the, the, the the Disney DVDs we have in the playroom at this point, right? So we're not there yet, but eventually we'll get, we'll get there for consumers. So I would expect the high end, the telepresence, the work collaboration stuff, uh, and the specific uses like like medical and, and automotive and, and factory stuff. Those will all be the initial uses everybody thinks about. Uh, and it doesn't mean it couldn't be done a different way. And we tried with, with the HoloLens, we were going to have it be an entertainment device to begin with, but it, the, the economics for me were very different. It wasn't going to be a $3,500 all-in-one headset. When we started that project, it was going to be glasses that look like Ray-Bans that, that are really small and a new console. So the console might cost you $600, but the glasses should only cost a couple hundred and the console would do most of the work. Now that's foiled by some technologies aren't available. Like you need really good wireless technology that isn't quite, isn't quite ready yet. So, but, but it is conceivable that somebody can solve that problem at the consumer end, but I think it's going to center on entertainment first if they do. The outdoor wearable case still is such a ways off because not only do you need to outdo the smartphone, you, have, you need to be better than a smartphone, you also need to uh, run all day. And if you used your phone all day, you would kill the battery pretty fast. I mean, if you, if you were using 3D graphics all day. So we need to figure out how this thing could be sparse and low power but still useful and more useful than a phone. It's a very, very hard set of problems. Yes, it certainly is. And it's really taken a long time for uh, people to kind of get used to it and to utilize it more, especially for the workspace. I, I work uh, full-time at Engage XR, and I notice, especially with our clients, you know, a lot of clients uh, have their different perspectives on what is useful and what they can use during meetings. The most common question I get is when I'm showing the, the 3D models and showing them different things they can do and engage. The most common question I get is, so what do we do with this? What do we, <laughs> what do we do? How do we, how do we utilize this? And I think passion is a big word that keeps coming up uh, when it comes to this technology is, is being passionate about this technology and what it can do for us and how we can utilize it. And I am curious, as far as the usefulness goes, what are you most passionate about with this technology? Why, why do you love it personally? Not just the consumers that you see in the clients and you know when you're uh, utilizing your consulting, um, but why do you love this technology? Uh, well, it, it's changed over the years. I mean, I think initially when I got into this, it was to build a holodeck. That was my main reason is that I, I wanted to make movies and I wanted to tell stories. And I realized, oh my gosh, nothing is ready. We are not even close. Once I got into this, I'm like, we are not even close to building. I tried. We built these projected environments where you can stand in it and be immersed in, in, inside of it, but they're really expensive and really hard to work with. Um, and then I started working on all the different problems you have to solve all the way up to the final problem of the, of the display and, and the user experience of that, uh, of that all day wearable ultimately. Um, so initially it was to tell stories. That was my reasoning. And then it, it, along the way, it transformed into figuring out how to help people the most. What do people need the most? I think, you know, if you really kind of look at, at psychology, 
at a, at a high level, we need to communicate. We have an inherent need to, to relate to other people, to communicate. And so many of the technologies we use diminish our ability to communicate. I think texting is 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 the worst. People have now, you know, we've gotten so bad that the two kids in the same room might text each other instead of talking to each other, each other. And they may think that's the future, but I hope it's not because that interpersonal interaction is where we get joy from. It's where you feel connected from with other people. And I really hope that doesn't uh, change except for the better in that we can now, we're now on the verge of being able to build experiences where you can feel connected to somebody else. You can make eye contact, you can have social awareness and feel like you're in the same space with somebody, even though you're physically remote. Uh, and if you happen to be in the same room with somebody, you can get even more magic on top of it of things that you couldn't do in real life. So that's what's most exciting to me is to unlock the connections between people for the fundamental reason that people want and need more love in their life. That's what everybody wants. Everybody does. Nobody wants to be alone. Everybody wants to be connected. And this is what, what a company like Meta has written on the whole time. I just don't like the way they've solved it, right? They got the right problem to solve. They just don't have the, the solutions to me have been subpar. Uh, and, and exploitive. And and what I really want to do is get in there and solve it the right way and, and solve it in a way that's pro-social for people that they really hopefully only benefit from. And there's no downside. I definitely think that passion is a huge part of virtual reality, augmented reality, all the different technologies. And it's wonderful to see what you're enthusiastic uh, about and what you love. And I am curious, is there something that we can learn from the past of this technology, any things that have been tried uh, before that can teach us about how to move this technology forward? Oh, that would be a really long answer. Yes, there's there's books worth of stuff, uh, not just in me, but if you talk to anybody who's been at this for 20, 30 years, there's so much stuff that people keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Right? I like the, the you know the idea of never make the same mistake twice, but we do because we don't pay attention, we don't listen. We have to see somehow humans need to try it for themselves. Like, you know, is the milk really bad? I better taste it. You know, like no, the milk is bad. Don't drink it. Um, and part of us actually wants people to taste it because we, we we commiserate when other people drink the bad milk like we drank. So no, but I, I don't want people making the same mistakes. And I think the biggest the biggest one that people make repeatedly is they build virtual worlds expecting a group of strangers to join there and for everything to be hunky-dory, that they're all just going to get along. And then they think, well, we'll just put a couple of moderators in. They, they, this has been like 20 years plus this has been going on from Star Wars Galaxies. You, you know, you could talk to Ralph Koster about this. So he had special designs to try to deal with this. Nothing is new here. This is the way people behave when there's less accountability and they don't have their physical bodies in place. And, and they want to, you know, occasionally act like jerks, or even if they just misunderstand the rules so that they don't even know what the rules are. And they're, you know, they tell you things like, well, it's just, um, you know, I didn't really hurt the person. I'm just, I'm just abusing their avatar. Um, but you're hurting the person. Eh? These, these are the lessons we want. So that's the most important one is, is that the harms are real. Even if there's no physical scars, people get hurt by misbehavior. There's some people who are going to do that no matter what, and we need to be able to identify them and kick them out really fast. My my favorite shot and for a solution was to put them on their own island so all the abusers can only abuse each other. Uh, but it doesn't really work. It doesn't really change their behavior, honestly, because they probably are abusive because they were abused by someone else. And so that's that's not the most humane way to deal with it. But in some cases, you do have to kick people out and isolate them because they're not going to reform themselves and, and get better. So anyway, that's number one. And I think number two is the, is the field of dreams thing that people keep thinking, if we just put enough money into it and build a platform and pay a few people to make some content, 
that if we build it, they will come. And there's never been a platform in history that worked that way. You know, you, people are amazed today because Facebook has 100 million uh, people signed up for their new uh, for their new Twitter clone, right? But the easiest way to get to 100 million people is to start with 3 billion. Like, it's nothing special when you already have 3 billion people. That's a drop in the bucket that have joined this new service. And maybe they'll get all 3 billion to join. And that would be something to crow about. But, you know, it would be something for a startup to get to 100 million in a week, but not not for a company with 3 billion users. Uh, and, you know, the, the, there's no platform that started from scratch that ever was successful just by being a platform. You have to solve real problems for real people, get them interested, get them joining, get them comfortable, and get them asking their friends or coworkers to join as well. And it, it just grows from there. And you got to start with those use cases. The original iPhone had, you know, the, the three to 10 most important uses that you can identify. They didn't just put out it saying, here's a smartphone. It does, it does multi-touch. That would have never worked. They had to have those use cases nailed before they ship the device. And the same is true for any successful new product. But we make that mistake over and over again that companies put it out there and they think, oh, we'll just get third-party developers to figure it out for us. They're smart. Like, they're not they're not any smarter than you are. There's just more of them. And so you have a better statistical chance, but if they don't see the people coming, they're not gonna come develop for your platform. And so you've got this giant catch 22. You're better off starting with actual customers and actual use cases. Even if you start with 10 people using your product, but they're really using it, that can grow. And, and, and that's, a good, that's a good basis to build something meaningful around. Yeah. Well, I am very excited to see where the technology goes, especially in the next five to 10 years. And I just want to say, I appreciate your time, your insight, your knowledge, your expertise. I appreciate all of it. And it has been wonderful talking to you. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you. I've had a blast. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You can listen to us every week. It's the Virtual World Society podcast. Avi, thank you again. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.